Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Someone, um, I, I told Dave to let you know we're going to be going through 1 Corinthians, and we won't start that till after the conference. So we have one more message in this, and then we have the conference, but uh, we're just going to take a peek in 1 Corinthians um, this morning just because it gives us an indication of how Paul looked at winning others to Christ. We're in this series, The Grand Invitation, and we've been looking at, at different things. The last time we were together, we talked about tearing down invisible walls, and we looked at how Jesus in John 4 talked about the principles that he used in, in witnessing, in sharing the gospel. And there were walls just much like there are today, religious walls, gender walls, racial walls, moral walls. And Jesus broke through all those with the woman at the well. Um, and uh, you can get that message online. But this morning we want to turn our hearts to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I would just encourage you to start reading this book. Start reading the book of 1 Corinthians. If you can read it through in one setting, that's great. It doesn't take that long. Um, so start reading it, and then when we begin our, our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll be all ready. Maybe you'll be teaching me. Who knows? That's, that's great. I'm willing to learn, too, with you, so we can, we can do that together. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I just want to read verses 19 to 23 for us, because Paul gives us uh, kind of a, a snapshot of his passion, his heart for the lost, and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I read a little story I want to share with you um, this last week. A story about a guy named Gib Martin. He actually later became a pastor. But he was 27 years old at the time, and he was a school teacher. And after spending his day with 27, 30 kids every day, he was just worn out and he wanted to unwind. And so he'd always go by the, the bar, the local bar there, and, and order a beer and sit there all by himself at the bar and just kind of bemoan his life. He was miserable. He had come actually from a religious background, but for the three years he he just kind of, three years ago, he had become an atheist. He, he decided there wasn't any God, and he wanted to be an atheist. So he was going through a period in his life of severe, not only depression, but desperation. He didn't feel like being around anyone. He didn't want any relationships. He didn't want any conversation. Every day at the bar, he would see this older man named Charlie. 
He was a carpenter who for many years had been an alcoholic. But then many years before, he had been led to Christ by Martin's great-grandmother. So God transformed Charlie's life. And Charlie was so burdened for souls that after work each day, he would stop at the bar. (laughs) And he'd order a cup of coffee. And he'd begin to share his life with those who would listen. Charlie could tell that this man, Gib Martin, was miserable just by his countenance. So he tried to reach out to him. He tried to befriend him. But he was just met with constant resistance. He wasn't able to share Christ with him because Gib just had a really poor attitude about the whole thing. But he did have an opportunity to invite him uh, to hear a man. He thought there was a speaker, a local Christian speaker, who had a doctor's degree. And it seemed that Gib Martin was impressed by education. So he said, hey, why don't you come hear this guy speak? And Gibb told Charlie that he would go if they could later discuss what the man had to say. So obviously, Charlie said, sure. Gibb went, and he heard the gospel for the very first time. He was so convicted, the story says, of his sin, that he went home and he literally vomited all night long, just sick. And he thought he was going to die. That's how desperate this man was. The next day at noon, he dropped to his knees and he gave his heart to Christ. He asked Christ to forgive him. He turned from his sin to the Savior. Well, later on he found out that Charlie and others that Charlie had led to Christ had spent that particular night, all night praying for Gib. They just had a real burden for his soul. But here comes the sad part of the story. The sad part of the story is that none of the local churches in that small town wanted to have anything to do with Charlie. They wouldn't allow him to come to church. They wouldn't associate with him. They wouldn't let him join the church, clearly. They shunned him because he went to the bar every day. He wasn't getting drunk. He wasn't even having a beer. But they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like the image that it portrayed. Even the church where Charlie directed Gib to go after he was saved wouldn't allow Charlie to join the church. I mean, you hear stories like that and you begin to wonder, what what do you think about that? Was that wrong for for Charlie to go to a bar and to get acquainted with those who frequented that place? And look for opportunities to share the gospel? Was Charlie following the example of the Apostle Paul to become all things to all men? So that by all means he might save some, as we read? I think most churches today would kind of have the mindset, Well, we don't want those kind of people in our church. He goes to the bar. Now, with that being said, (laughs) please know, as your pastor, I'm not telling you to go to the bar. (laughs) Don't you go to the bar and get drunk. Oh, my pastor said it was all right. I'm not saying that. (laughs) Okay? Because there's a lot of people that misapply this text that Paul, that we just read from Paul. Um, 
Way back in the hippie days, the Jesus movement, all that, there was a cult called the Children of God cult. And they encouraged, um, basically, women to go out and sexually entice men to join the cult. And they said, well, you need to be all things to all men. That's, that's the, re, the, the, the rationale they used. Now, we know that's clearly wrong, but that's how you can misapply this text. A more current example of people who misapply this text is one that's called the insider movement. Have you ever heard of the insider movement? It's kind of floating around in different missional churches. And specifically, it's, it's a movement that specifically reaches out to Muslims. And in an attempt to kind of take the gospel and contextualize it for the Islamic mind to understand and the Islamic cultures to understand, they go as far as to say that Muslim converts to, to Christianity can continue to go to the mosque, can continue to uh, word the Islamic creeds, to continue to observe the Muslim fasts, to even view the Quran as revelation from God, and even, listen to this, to esteem Muhammad as God's prophet. They say, that's okay. Uh, a lot of people who fear these missionaries that have this kind of mindset really believe that they're coming up with a new religion. They call it Christlam. See, if we want to truly win others to Christ, we, we, we honestly need to think carefully about the words that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote here for us. Gordon Fee, who has a wonderful commentary on 1 Corinthians, put out by Erdman's, he says, This text has nothing to do with adapting the message of the gospel to the language and perspective of its recipients. Neither, he says, does it have anything to do with observing social taboos among Christians. Rather, it has to do with how one lives or behaves among those he wishes to evangelize. See, we have to understand the message of the cross is often offensive. It's an offensive message to proud sinners. But we should not be personally offensive in neutral matters of custom or culture. What Paul is saying here is winning others to Christ requires presenting the gospel to lost people without needlessly offending them. In the context, real Paul is writing here against the Corinthians who were demanding their rights. That's what they were doing. He's showing how he laid aside his rights for the sake of sinners. He had a right to support, to be supported in ministry. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, he talks about that. But he laid aside the right so as not to be a hindrance to those that he was sharing the gospel with. And here he's really arguing with us that he had a right to be free from the social customs of others in areas that are non-moral areas. But he laid aside that right. And it says that he literally enslaved himself to all. 
becoming all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. Well, to understand that to win others to Christ, we must share the content of the gospel. That's what he says there in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He wants us to remove these cultural barriers that would needlessly distract or offend those we're trying to reach. You know, people are not going to be converted by watching our lives alone. That's a misnomer. You know, you hear a lot when you talk about evangelism, some Christians, maybe they're a little shy, maybe they're a little introvert. Well, you know, I just live my life for Jesus, but I don't ever say a word. Well, that's not right. That's not what we're called to do. Yeah, is it uncomfortable to share your faith with others? Definitely. There's not a, a person alive that shares their faith would say, oh, yeah, I just love. No, it's, it's nervous. You get nervous. You don't know how they're going to receive it. You don't, you, know, you don't know if they're going to be confrontational. You don't know if they're going to ask you a question that you don't know. And so what do we do? We just decide, well, I'm just going to do my little Christian thing here in this lost and dying world and not say a peep to anybody about it. What Paul tells us here is that we should remove all cultural barriers that needlessly distract or offend those we're trying to reach. We don't want our outward appearance or even our political views to be the issue. See, this is the problem with a lot of churches today. More so, even back in the the 70s, 80s, they became political. Politics is not going to save you. Politics has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Absolutely nothing. It's irrelevant who's in the White House. It's irrelevant who wins the Senate or the Congress. I'm not saying we don't go and and, and vote for the best candidate that would represent the biblical views as we understand them. We live in a country where we're called to do that. But don't think that's the end all. We want the gospel to be the issue. So first of all, here in your outline, winning others to Christ requires presenting the gospel to lost people. That sounds like such a basic thing, but I think we need to be reminded of that. I mean, God could have chosen a lot of other methods to share the gospel. Do you ever think about that? And they probably would have been a lot more effective than having a bunch of saved sinners do it. I mean, he could have done... Hey, angels, you go and share the gospel. I mean, they could have done it perfectly. But God didn't choose that. He chose saved people to tell lost people about a message of how they could be saved. So our text shows here that there's both a goal that we must own and a message that we must proclaim. There must be a goal that we have to own by all means to save Some, the Bible says. He sums it up there in verses 22 and 23. So that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. You have to ask yourself when you read those words, is that your goal? So that I may 
By all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. You may be sitting here, well, is that supposed to be my goal? I mean, he was an apostle. He was a missionary. Maybe that's for somebody who's just gifted in evangelism. No, because Jesus came, and when he came, he very clearly stated in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus came to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Now, the last time I thought about it is we're Christians. We're called to be like Christ. So maybe that should be our goal, too, to seek and to save that which is lost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the next chapter there, verse 33, Paul says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And then in verse chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So you see, biblically, this is something we're to be doing. We're to be seeking and seeing the lost saved. And we all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. But we should pursue with a passion the ultimate goal of seeing lost people get saved. That's why I like what Ken said earlier in the service. You know, hey, we hope you come to the Equip Conference so that you can be equipped. There's some flyers back there. What a wonderful way to introduce someone to Christ. Bring them to the Equip Conference. One of the messages Friday night is, what is the gospel? Clearly, it's going to be very in right their face. It's going to be right there for them to see. What a glorious thing. You invite someone, they come to Christ. I mean, don't you want to be part of something like that? That should be our goal. Four things about this goal. First of all, it's realistic. It's a realistic goal. Even as gifted as as Paul was, You know, he does not think that he will save everyone. Notice he doesn't say that everyone would be saved. He doesn't say that. But he said, save what? Some. That's all God's asking, is to be part of this program, part of this plan, part of this purpose that he has for you as a believer, that some may be saved. Paul realistically knew that the gospel would be for some in aroma of life, but for others, an aroma of death. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But the goal is to save some, to see some come to Christ. I mean, when you think about even Redwood City, and you think of all the lost people here, I mean, our hearts should break. We should have a passion to go out and to diligently and faithfully share the gospel with those we run across. And you can become overwhelmed with that, especially here in the Bay Area. Very liberal area. Most of the people don't go to church. They're not interested in the things of God. They're they're interested in flaunting just the opposite. But where does it start? Maybe God can use you as an instrument to save some of these people around us. And we need to begin praying For those we have contact with who don't know Christ, praying for opportunities to present the gospel to them. It's a realistic goal to ask God to use you to save some. Secondly, it's a worthy goal. 
Nothing is more worthy of your time and effort than helping people get right with God. Would you agree with that? Nothing. I mean, you take all the NFL games that are coming up. That's not worthy of this. Nothing will help the world more than leading people to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Nothing will help families, will help children, more than leading members to Christ. See, a goal deserves, a worthy goal deserves worthy means of achieving it. A worthy goal deserves worthy means of achieving it. When Paul says here to use all means to save some, he means that he's willing to lay aside all of his rights, everything, to bring someone to Christ. doesn't matter what it is. He does not mean this, however. He does not mean that the ends justifies the means. <laughs> That's not what Paul is saying. And some in the church today have taken it as that. So they've dumbed down the gospel. They're willing to go to a bar and actually drink and then try to slip the gospel in there somehow. That's not a good plan. See, when Paul says that he uses all means to save some, he's simply saying, you know what, I'm willing to lay aside all of my rights to bring someone to Christ. I remember back when I first started in in youth ministry, the first church I was in, the pastor would have certain days of the year. Friend day. Everybody brings their friend. And he'd promote this like some major thing. And I remember in the service, you know, he'd give a message. And then, hey, if you're here and you came to Christ, raise your hand, you know. And then the next Sunday, he'd have a tally for us ready. And, you know, 30 people came to Christ. Well, we never saw these people again. But, you know, because there was a book they were going to get that was free or whatever, you know, yeah, I'll raise my hand. I'll check that out. I'm not saying God can't use things like that, but we don't need to dumb down the gospel. We don't need to cheapen the gospel of Christ by bringing the level of our worship or the level of the message. You hear it all the time. Well, people can't focus more than 10 minutes. If you're preaching more than 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you've lost everybody. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Then everybody's lost by the time I'm done. Three times over, probably. But, see, people grow to understand what they're, what they're fed, what, what, what they're given. And, and so, you know, I'm not saying that long sermons are definitely good. Hopefully you're saying something that's good. But, you know, there have been churches that, you know, Easter service, they're giving away flat screen TVs. You know, they're doing this. They're doing, oh, just come, you know. They want to, everything is all about the evangelistic thing. And it, it's, it's crazy. But the important thing is we want people to understand that the goal of sharing Christ with us, sharing the gospel, it's a worthy goal. And we don't need to cheapen it. Sec- thirdly there, it's a crucial goal. I mean, what could be more crucial than s- seeing people saved? It's not like... You have a third choice. Either a person is saved, their eternal destiny is heaven, or they're lost, and their eternal destiny is hell. 
I know the Catholic Church says there's a place called Purgatory, and, and maybe if you go to Purgatory, eventually, that, that's a lie. From the pit of hell, that's not found anywhere in Scripture. So you have two choices, heaven or hell, saved or lost. We're not talking about a temporary situation here. We're talking about an eternal one. I mean, if we say that we believe the Bible, if we say that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot escape the fact of an eternal hell. And that eternal hell is an awful place. It's not what the media makes it. Oh, it's a big party of a bunch of pagans just partying it up. No, that's not what hell is. Jesus described hell as a place of unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. What does that mean? It means that when you're in hell, you will be being burned up, but you'll never really be burnt up. If you've ever been burned, even your finger, if you burn it on a curling iron or you burn it on... Imagine how much it hurts to have your whole body in the state of being burned and yet never burned up. It also describes it as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He never pictures hell as a giant party for the wicked. As a matter of fact, he tells of the rich man in the flames pleading with Abraham to send someone from the dead to warn his brothers that they wouldn't go there. You remember that. Why? Because it was a place of torment. This is where people will go without Christ. So when we talk about people getting saved, they aren't getting saved from their low self-esteem. They're not getting saved from their addiction. They're not getting saved from their life of it's been a failure or whatever, their bad marriages. No, they're getting saved from God's eternal wrath and judgment on their sin. They're getting saved from that to eternal life with God in heaven. That's a crucial goal. Fourthly, it's a compelling goal because it's so crucial. The goal of saving some must grip our lives. It truly should grip our lives. When you look at these verses that we read, it, you, can just, you can taste almost Paul's passion for the lost. In verse 19, he says that I may win more. Verse 20, that I may win the Jews. Verse 20, that I may win those who are under the law. 21, that I may win those who are without the law. Verse 22, that I may win the weak. Verse 22, he finally says that I just may save some by all means. And he finally ends, he says, I'm willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel. Verse 16, earlier he says that he's under compulsion, compulsion to preach the gospel. See, the gospel wasn't something that he controlled. It controlled him. It controlled him. Paul was obsessed with people hearing the gospel. If this were not from the Apostle Paul, and if it were not in inspired scripture, some people might say, well, Paul, you know you can't save anybody from a theological point of view. Where are you going with this? Only God can save people. He doesn't need us. 
They'll say things like, if God has chosen to save them, then, you know, he'll do it and he'll do it without your help. That's what a pious minister told William Carey many years ago when he proposed to take the gospel to India. He said, young young man, if God wants those heathens saved, he will save them. He doesn't need you. But you know what? Both Carey and the Apostle Paul realized that the sovereign God uses means to save the elect. He uses men and women who are compelled by the goal of saving some. Let me ask you this morning, does does the goal of saving lost people grip you? Is it something you think about at night? Is it something you think about when you wake up? Is it your passion as it was Paul's? I'll be honest with you. I'm way too complacent when it comes to this. I see lost people every day. But I also feel the gravity. I think of my friend who just had open heart surgery, Joe, we, we've been praying for. And I remember being in Hawaii, not being there on the day of his surgery. And I'm thinking, wow, I hope he makes it. He did. But I want to pray for that man to get saved. What a glorious it would think be one day that he's here worshiping with us. <laughs> we pray for you. I mean, what an incredible thing. You don't think God uses us? Paul shows us also that there's a goal we must own by all means to save some. But there's also a message that we must proclaim, and that's the gospel. I mean, truly, we cannot save anyone in and of ourselves. The Bible clearly states that. But in Romans 1.16, one of my favorite verses, the power of God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to what? To everyone who believes. It's the power of God for salvation. That means that winning people to Christ does not require that you learn how to become a clever salesman. You don't have to have the best written track. You don't have to have all your Bible verses memorized in their places and everything. I mean, it's great to have all that, but if you don't, God can still use you. It means basically that you understand what the gospel is. You understand it well enough that you can present it to someone. I always tell folks, you should be able to present the gospel in one to two minutes with someone if you needed to. You should know it that well. There are three parts, basically. The first part is our problem. Our problem is sin. A rebellion against a holy God who created us to know him. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 6.23, Romans, for the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God in hell. Secondly, you look at God's provision for our sin. For our problem. That provision is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God in human flesh. He came to teach us God's ways and to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin that God's righteousness demands. And since he is God, his death has infinite value. 
And since he is man, his death atones for human sin. He had to be both. And God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that his death was an acceptable sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our problem, our provision, God's provision, and then thirdly, our required response. You share the gospel with somebody, well, they have to respond You want to encourage them to trust in God's provision in Christ as payment in full for their sins. You don't need them to join the church. You don't even need them to come to church. They need to turn to Christ. To trust in Christ, we have to turn from our sins and give up our attempts to get into heaven by good works. John 3.16 says, Whoever believes... In Jesus Christ has eternal life. We must trust in Jesus as we would trust in a medical doctor who gave us a prescription and said, here, take this little pill and it's going to cure you. You must trust in Christ as you would trust in a pilot who says, you know what? You're on board. We're going to San Francisco We're pulling back. We're going to take off. We'll be there in four hours. I had perfect trust in that pilot. I never met the guy. I wasn't able to go up to the the, the cockpit and say, can I see your credentials? I just want to make sure you got a license and stuff. Full trust. See, to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior means that his death and his resurrection are your only hope. To be forgiven. And to be in heaven one day. To win others to Christ, you have to present the simple good news that you've sinned against God, but Jesus Christ bore your penalty on the cross, and if you will turn from your sin and trust him as your Savior, he will forgive you of all your sins. Well, secondly, winning others to Christ requires presenting the gospel to lost people without needlessly offending them. And I just want to share a couple moments here, but he shows us three things here in the text, about how Paul preached the gospel boldly. See, we have too many Christians today that aren't willing to preach the gospel boldly. They want to just kind of throw it out there like a wet noodle and go, well, you know, if you want to believe this, that's fine. That's not the way you present the gospel. First of all here, there's an attitude to adopt. Paul said clearly in this text, in verse 19, I am what? A slave to all. (laughs) He's a slave to all. For though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. A slave does not view himself as being over others, but being under them, being their servant. He does not think of himself first, but of those he serves. Paul clearly made himself a slave to those who were without Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you view the lost as the enemy? To be fought? To be argued with? To be put down? 
Or do you view the lost in your life as those you're called to serve? And if you do feel that you are called to serve them, how are you serving them? Do you look for opportunities to serve your neighbors? Maybe your lost family members? If an unbeliever is rude toward you, do you react with anger or kindness? It's an illustration of an army sergeant who was just a mean guy. And he knew one of the guys under his command was a Christian, the private, new guy in the army. And he saw this guy kneel and, and pray every night before he went to bed by his bunk. One night he threw his muddy shoes. Sergeant took off his shoes, stinky muddy shoes, and chucked them. Hit the private right in the head. Walked out of the room. Private just went on praying. In the morning, the sergeant found his boots beside his bunk. Beautifully polished. Shining like they've never shined before. And the story says that act of kind service on the part of that private resulted in that sergeant coming to Christ. See, we don't know what Christ is going to do or how he's going to use us. I don't know if I would have responded that way. But that kind of behavior starts with an attitude that you have to adopt. The attitude that, you know what, I'm a slave to the lost. I'm here to do anything possible to see them one to Christ. Well, secondly here, there's a perception to gain. Where is the person at? Paul had one message, the gospel. He never changed it. But he considered the perspective of his hearers. He tried to think and act maybe as they did, as long as it wasn't sinful, so that they would hear the message. Verse 20, to the Jews, Paul says, Paul became a Jew. Well, wasn't Paul already a Jew, you might ask? Yeah. But he had left all those strict cultural aspects of Judaism behind when God called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That wouldn't have worked over there. So when he went back to Jerusalem, or to Jewish people anywhere, he had to relate to them as a Jew. When he was around Jews, Paul was kosher, you might say. He skipped the bacon for breakfast. Verse 20 also says those under the law. It's another way of looking at the Jews. It focuses on their religious practices, keeping the ceremonial aspects of the law that they were so good at. Paul was no longer under the law of Moses, but he could observe a a Jewish celebration. And if he did that, it gave him the opportunity to, to reach out to these Jews. Verse 21, he talks about those who were without the law, refers to Gentiles. So he could lay aside all the non-moral aspects of the law of Moses and live culturally like a Gentile if he had to. He's quickly quick to say there that he's under the law of Christ, which refers to the moral aspects of God's law. He's not going to compromise. Paul would never use profanity. He would never tell dirty jokes to relate to lost people. 
but he would eat meat offered to idols to reach Gentiles. He even says to the weak, he was willing to adapt. Paul became all things to all men. And I want to ask, are we willing to do that? Because he said, I'm a slave to all. He wanted to understand where these lost people were at. You can't understand a lost person if you're never willing to talk to them, if you're never willing to spend time with them. Well, thirdly, there's a balance to maintain, to be all things to all people while being all for God. See, this is always a struggle for Christians, and it's easy to to get in error on both sides of that balance. You have some people who live like the Amish. They withdraw from the world, and they're so culturally distant that they have virtually no impact on the world whatsoever. The world just looks at them as being weird. They aren't of the world, but neither are they in the world. That's not necessarily a good thing. On the other hand, to reach the world, other professing Christians become so much like the world that they lose their holiness and they compromise the gospel. So there's a balance there. We've all seen, we're even pastors from pulpits that will use profanity, thinking somehow they're going to relate or they'll dress a certain way, hipster, whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's so ridiculous. You know, I mean, you need to be who you are. But at the same time, if you can relate to somebody and become a little bit like them without compromising your morals, that's a good thing. You have people that aren't of the world, but neither are in the world. And then you have a group that are in the world, and they're also of the world. And God says no. Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. That's what he says in John 17. Jesus himself was known as a friend of sinners, but he never compromised his holiness. Never. One way to keep our balance is to keep our goal in view at all times. What's our goal? To save some. Your reason for going into the world is not to have a party with them, but to snatch them out of the flames, Jude 23 says. Paul mentions in in 9.23 there, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it, of the gospel with them along with those he sees come to faith in Christ, Paul wants to share in the eternal blessings of the gospel. I mean, if Charlie, the story I started out with, the converted alcoholic, said, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm not going to go in those bars anymore, Gib Martin would have never heard the gospel, would have never came to Christ. On the other hand, if Charlie had gone into the bars and started drinking and carousing again, guess what? He never would have reached Gib Martin either because what's his message? Nothing. To win others to Christ, beloved, it's very clear we have to go where they're at so that we can get opportunities to present the gospel to them. But we also need to live in a way that's distinct. Our lifestyles, our behavior 
need to be different. We're called to be foreigners in this land so that we don't compromise the message that we've come to give them. I pray that we can ask God to have Paul's passion when it comes to the lost. I cannot honestly stand here before you and say that I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I can't. But that doesn't mean that I can't work on it. It doesn't mean that I can not go out and try a little harder to reach the lost. And I ask that the Lord would speak to your heart this morning about this, that he could use our church, Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, in liberal San Francisco Bay Area, to reach more for Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our message this morning. Thank you for Paul, and we thank you for his passion for the gospel. We thank you for his willingness to become all things to all men, that he might see some come to Christ. Lord, you're not asking us to go out here into this area and save everybody. That's not up to us. But you are calling upon each believer here this morning to make sure that we are not just living for you, but that we are willing to share the life-changing gospel with those we come across. The fact that we've sinned. The fact that you provided a way out of that sin by providing your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior. And encouraging them to respond to the message of the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would see many come to Christ through the ministry of this church. Not just here, but through the missionaries we support around the world. But Lord, I pray that each individual would ask the question, am I doing everything I can for the sake of saving some? Am I doing everything I can for the sake of the gospel? We thank you for our time here this morning. Lord, I just thank you for those who helped out last week. I thank you for uh, Dave who preached a wonderful message and Bob and Terry and the worship team who led our church in worship. I thank you for those who serve in so many different ways in this church. And we just pray that you would give us a wonderful day, a wonderful weekend. Pray for our fellowship time, pray for the food, and just our fellowship, that it would be honoring to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.